I want to invite your attention to the book of Judges this morning. Would you look there with me, please? The book of Judges in the Old Testament. I was doing uh, just my normal Bible reading, and uh, guys, I've got some lights off there. I don't know if you can bring those on. I'm going to need those so I can see the scripture. <laughs> Y'all trying to figure it out back there? All right, I'll just turn around this way then, see if I can read. <laughs> I'm going to have to do some reading here in a minute. All right. I was just doing some Bible reading and I came across this, uh, reading my Bible through, and the Lord really um, dealt with my heart about it. It's the story of Samson, at least a portion of it. Don't you love Samson? A couple of you do. All right. It's kind of the, sort of like a superhero kind of character, I think, you know, in the Old Testament. Um, the book of Judges is an interesting book. We're going to give you more details on that in just a minute. But there's a passage here in Judges chapter 15 that um, Samson has, has had a wife of the Philistines. Now, he really wasn't supposed to go and get a wife from there, but he goes anyway, and some things happen, and he ends up leaving the area, and so the father-in-law gives his wife away to someone else. Well, he shows back up in chapter 15 of the book of Judges and wants to know where she is. And when he learns about what had happened, he gets angry and he goes and catches, the Bible says, 300 foxes. He wasn't just strong, he was fast, man. 300 foxes and he ties their tails together and he sets them on fire and lets them run through the fields. That's kind of cool, I think. I'm sorry, I just think... That's sort of neat. And so, of course, they just, they burn up all the fields. Well, the Philistines get angry, and they come after him, so he slays a bunch of them. And the Bible tells us in uh, Judges chapter 15, and uh, looking over in uh, verse number 7, Samson said to them, since you would uh, do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Now I want you to get this picture. We're going to go back to chapter 13 in just a minute, but before we do, uh, let me give you this picture. So here he is, he goes, and he, he goes to the cleft of the rock. Now that's a good place to go. And so he's resting up. And then some of his own people from Israel come after him and the lights come on in just the right time. <laughs> Thank you so much. You guys are awesome back there. I can actually see now. All right. Verse number nine. Now the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and deployed themselves against Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? So they answered, we have come up to arrest Samson to do to him as he has done to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah. Now, this pretty fierce guy. You're going to send 3,000 guys after him. Would you agree? Man, this is a story that needs, needs to be noted. So here the Bible says they sent 3,000 guys uh, to the cleft of the rock at Edom. And they said to Samson, do you know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done to us? Now, you need to keep in mind that the Philistines are ruling over them. I'm going to explain this further in a minute. But let me give you the picture and where I'm going with this. All right. I got a huge introduction here. So little bitty message, big introduction. Not really, it's a big message too, but anyway. 
All right, so uh, uh, don't you understand that the Philistines rule over us? And, and then the Bible says, And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. But they said to him, We have come down to arrest you, that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Now we've come to get you. And uh, I don't think Samson is shaking in his sandals one bit. He said, Then Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. Tell me that if I go with you, you're not going to try to do me in on the way. So they spoke to him saying, verse 13 says, No, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand, but we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him from the rock. When he had come to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. So we've got an ambush that's taking place. They see him. He's coming down with these uh, uh, men of Judah. And they come after him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it, and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. Verse 17, notice it. And so it was when he had finished speaking that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called that place Ramath-Lehi. Then he became very thirsty. Make note of this, please. He became very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord and said, You have given that... You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised. So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi and water came out and he drank and his spirit returned and he revived. I want to speak to you today on the subject of a thirst for revival. And we're going to pick this apart a little bit and go back into chapter 13. Before we do that, let's pray together, okay? Father, we come to you and we thank you for this wonderful story you've given to us in the book of Judges. And Lord, I pray that you'd enlighten our minds and hearts now. God, we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We ask God that you give us ears to hear from you and hearts to feel what you'd have us feel and minds to comprehend the message you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're going to understand the book of Judges, you need to understand a, a few things. First of all, um, keep in mind that God led the children of Israel out of Egypt through one by the name of Moses. They wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness. God raised up Joshua. They went on into the land of promise, the promised land in the land of Canaan. Now the area has been divided up among the tribes and Joshua has died. They have no king. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us in the book of Judges, there was no king and the people did that which was right in their own eyes. Keep this in mind. There is no central government for the people of God in Israel in the land of Canaan. There is no religious leader at this time. No one individual that leads them. As a matter of fact, I was reading one Jewish historian who wrote this, and I thought it was very interesting and very applicable to the day that we live in. He made the statement that now, since the tribes have settled into their territory, into their land, they had built backyard altars, and they worshipped on those altars. Those altars were not used for idol worship. They still worshiped the true and living God. They just didn't come together at the tabernacle like they once had done. 
You say, what is the significance of that? We live in a day and age where people say, I have no need of the church. I have no need to come together to worship. I'll simply worship on my own, doing my own thing. And that's the world that we live in. There are many applications that we can make from this story and, and, and the passage found in Judges. But uh, before we get much deeper into this, I will tell you that the calculation of the time period of the Judges is controversial. You'll find some who say it's only about 180 years and others that say it's 450 years. And the text that cites it in the book of Acts is unclear as to what it includes. Does it include the 40 years of the wilderness? Does it include Samuel's period who was a transitional judge slash prophet? What exactly is involved? It is safe to say that the period is about 300 years. There's no king involved and God used individuals. He picked individuals, some 15 of them, over the period of time to rule his people, to lead his people at various times uh, to victory. Now, having said that, let me give you this. It's important that we understand what is called the sin cycle in the book of Judges. If you'll get the sin cycle, you'll understand the book of Judges much better. It'll come up on our PowerPoint for us. First of all, Israel would sin. That's how it would begin. We found that uh, in the early stages of our reading. Chapter, uh, uh, where is it at? Uh, let's see. Well, verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 13, which we did not uh, read yet, but let me read it to you. Verse 1. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice what it said. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So Israel would send, God would send an oppressor. In this case, it is the Philistines. That's the second part of the sin cycle. God would send an oppressor. Earlier, it might have been the Midianites with uh, Gideon being the, the judge. So God would send an oppressor. Israel would repent. They would get so frustrated and aggravated with the conditions that they were living in, they would turn to God. God then would raise up a deliverer. Maybe it was Deborah. Maybe it was Gideon, as we said earlier, uh, Jephthah, many others throughout the book of Judges. He would give them a deliverer. In our case that we're reading right now, the deliverer's name is Samson. So God raises up Samson against the Philistines. Israel then uh, would get things uh, uh, right with God. God would deliver them and now they would live in peace for a period of time. And then what would happen? As you read the book of Judges, Israel would sin. God would send an oppressor. And as you read the book of Judges, this cycle goes on and on. It's repeated throughout the book. And it's almost as though as you're reading it, you're wondering, when are they ever going to get this thing? When are they going to learn? And yet this is what we see. So in our text, we have uh, Samson. Samson is uh, the leader that God raises up and he's going to conquer the Philistines or at least help the people get freedom from the Philistines. After this battle, he becomes very thirsty. Thirsty. Occasionally, as a pastor, I get asked this question. Pastor, do you believe there's going to be a great revival in America before the Lord returns? And I will often answer that question with something like this. It depends. It depends. I think there can be a great revival, but it depends on the thirst. The reason there's not a revival going on in the United States of America is because people are not thirsty for God or the things of God. There is no thirst. 
I compare it to the day and age when I was a missionary in Australia and we saw people drive or catch a train two hours away from us and come regularly to the house of God to study the word of God. Just this past week we had our missionary friend, one that we support, uh, to Bolivia, Brother Jeff Price. Jeff told us he has people who travel from three hours away from them. Every Sunday they come to their church. They have no church in their area. So every Sunday they travel three hours just to study the Word of God together. It's hard to get people to travel three miles, let alone three hours to study the Word of God. Why is it that there seems to be a thirst in the foreign field, but not necessarily America. Well, there are many reasons. I'm sure we could say the familiarity. You passed several churches on the way here. Perhaps, perhaps there would be more of a thirst if it was not so readily available to us. Be careful with that. Be careful with that. But where is the thirst? is the question that we need to answer. Jesus actually said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 42 in verse 1, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. So I ask you today, is there a thirst for revival in you? I'm not talking about the church as a whole, although I will tell you this, that the church is simply a reflection of us as individuals. If as individuals we have a thirst for God, then the church takes on that personality. Would you agree? So will there be a thirst? You say, will there be a revival? I say to you, there will be if there's a thirst for the things of God. There's a survey taken recently that 42% of corporate America, that is executives involved in the decision making of corporate America, they say they can justify unethical behavior as long as, now we're talking about things like cyber crimes, we're talking about things like cash payments under the table, we're talking about briberies and all forms of corruption, they can justify it if it helps them meet their financial target. 42% said that's absolutely justifiable. In a Gallup poll taken last year, 2016, 72% of Americans said this, the moral values in America are getting worse. Americans are losing their moral compass, was the comment that was made. 72% of Americans said that. What is a moral compass, you might ask? A moral compass has been defined as an internalized set of values and objectives that guide a person with regard to ethical behavior and decision making. For Christians, the number one influence of our moral compass is the Word of God, or should be the Word of God. What is right? What is wrong? What should we do? What should we not do? And the question here is, is there a thirst for the things of God. I believe this. I think there are three lessons that we can learn from this whole story of Samson. And for the first one, I want to invite you back to Judges 13. And if you want to fill in the notes in your, in your study sheet, number one, God has a call that requires a thirst. This is the first lesson. God has a call that requires a thirst. Now, um, let, me, let me take you again Judges 13 for just a minute. We read uh, some of that. We read the first verse dealing with the Philistines being sent as the oppressors. Now let's pick up in verse 2. 
Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now therefore please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink or not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Very interesting. Why? Because the Bible is telling us that God has designed a plan for the life of this young man who we will know as Samson as we continue reading. God has a plan for his life and it has to do with accomplishing his work. In this case, it's to help Israel get free of the oppressor, the Philistines. And so the Bible tells us there's some things that you need to do with this man, this young man that's going to be given to you. Now Manoah, uh, he, uh, he was not present during the time that the angel of the Lord appeared. And this is interesting. So he prays to God. And, and you read with me down in verse number 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. I love this because here's a, here's a guy. The angel of the Lord appears to his wife. We don't even have the wife's name. We'll call her Mrs. Manoah, but that's not her name. We don't know what her name is. And, and, and here she is. God appears to her and says, you're going to have a child, and this child has a plan. Every person born, God has a plan for us. And we need to understand that. It may not be to be a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist or a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it's to be exactly what you are in whatever capacity you are serving in, but be the best light you can possibly be to shine in that area of your world. But God has a plan. That's evidence throughout the scriptures, and we need to pay attention to it. Jeremiah 1 and verse number 5, God said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. The psalmist talked about how God knew who he was before he was ever even born. He said in Psalm 139, verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. He has not forsaken you. He, he knew you before you were ever born. That's right. He's got a plan for you in your life. Right. It's important for us to inquire as to what that plan is and how God wants to use us. And parents, by the way, Manoah says, God, send the angel back so that we can know how to raise this child. And then down in uh, uh, chapter 13, uh, verse number 12, Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? Parents, I want to tell you something. Of all the help that you will seek, of all the things that you might try to look up, the best thing in the world you can do is pray and ask God how to raise your child. 
So very important. Seek his will. He knows things about your child that nobody else could possibly know. And he can instruct you as to how to go about raising that child. It's an interesting thing that we read in the text of Proverbs, a familiar verse to most of us. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. But some of us forget that there's a text around that verse. So let me give you some of that text that's surrounding it. Proverbs 22, beginning in verse 3. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards his soul will be far from them. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. Now, what's the Bible trying to tell us? Listen, every child is different. Can I get an amen? amen. You guys uh, are different than your siblings. And, and I, I think sometimes I was adopted. I really believe that. My, my brother and sister, they're kind of like way out there, man. Um, I'm kind of hoping that was the case, but no. But she's not here. I can talk about her. But anyway, what I'm saying, what I'm trying to say is every child is different. And knowing how that child is, teaching them discernment, that's what the passage is talking about. Listen, if you've got a child that's going to make decisions and they're a leader, teach them how to lead. If you've got a child that you know is a follower, teach them discernment so they know who to follow and who not to follow. It's so important that you spend time with him. God does that with us individually. And here Manoah is pouring his heart out to God. And he said, God, tell me how I'm supposed to raise this child. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. What is the call you place on their life? I want to help them and guide them and direct them. So God, please show me what I need to do with my child. That's important that we do and that we seek. Jeremiah 29 verse 11. Probably most of you knew this verse was coming. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. God has a plan for our life. He had a plan for Samson's life. He said he's going to begin to deliver the people from the Philistines. I want to use him in this way. Now the Bible says he was going to be a Nazarite from his birth. Very interesting. The Nazarite vow, we read several of the requirements already to be a Nazarite. This was a vow that could be taken by men or women. It was for a period of time. In uh, Samson's case, it was actually from his birth. So his mother was to observe certain things that he was to abstain from. The specifics, I'll read some of them to you. It says they were to abstain from wine or any fermented drink. Not even to drink grape juice or eat the grapes, raisins, or the seeds or the skins. A Nazarite was not to cut his hair uh, during the length of the vow, and he was not to go near a dead body, even if it was a close relative who had passed. All of these things. Some people think that Jesus was a Nazarite. Do not confuse that. He was a Nazarene. A Nazarene is one from Nazareth. He never took, the Bible never records any Nazarite vow that Jesus partook in. And so don't confuse those. But nonetheless, the Nazarite vow is what Samson had and who he was. So God had given to him this assignment, this call in his life. And by the way, if you answer the call of God and you try to serve God, listen to what I'm about to say, you'll develop a thirst. It requires a thirst. You've got to want to do what it is God wants to use you to do. 
And Samson, in this case, was going to lead the people into freedom from the Philistines. Now that brings me to the second lesson that we need to learn. Number two, God has a cause that results in a thirst. There's a call that requires a thirst, and then there's a cause that results in a thirst. Now the way God does this is interesting. And I want to take a moment and say something to you, because I, I think, you know, the Bible deals with these things. We need to stop a moment and look at them. Now, it's interesting that in the Old Testament, we are dealing with a passage of Scripture that involves ancient Israel. This is the, the ancient Jewish people. Now, God has said, here's what I'm going to use you for, Samson. I'm going to use you to deliver the people. Now, some violence is involved. There may be some people who read this and say, you know what, pastor? This doesn't look too much different than what we're seeing in some religions around the world today. That if you don't agree with us, we're going to kill you. And we're going to use violence here to accomplish that task. So bear with me a moment. It do, there's no argument there. You can't argue that. It appears that way. But let me stress this. This is not Christianity. This is really not even Judaism. This is ancient Israel. It's a different setting. It's a different time. If you want to know about Christianity now, let's talk about Christianity. Because in Christianity, the kingdom of God consists of those who place their faith and trust in Jesus. And we do not use violence. We do not go kill people who disagree with us. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself, in talking with Pilate, spoke of this. In John 18 and verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. It's not, listen, Christians, we don't go out and kill people who disagree with us, and we're not out to set up a government on this planet that, that uh, somehow enforces what we believe. So let's be very clear on this, that what we read in the Old Testament is Old Testament stuff in relation to Israel. It is not the same as Christianity. There's a New Testament that talks about our relationship with Jesus. Jesus himself will set up his kingdom one day. He doesn't need us to do it. Amen. And the teaching that somehow Christianity is the same as Islam or the same as other religions, I say to you, it is not the same. And we need to be very careful with that and understand it for its text. So God has a cause. In this case, there are five contributors to the thirst. Let me give them to you. The first one, we could say, is simply attending to the work of God. Samson goes about slaying the Philistines, and he works up a thirst. Now, as I was thinking about this, I thought to myself, you know, it's interesting that one day when I die, I'm not going to be thirsty. <laughs> Amen? Amen? So let me make the application. If we become spiritually dead, that might be one reason why we're not thirsty. Because as long as we're alive, we're going to be thirsty. Matter of fact, most of you are going to hit the water fountain before you leave here in just a minute. Because we're talking about being thirsty. I wonder how many of you are familiar with these names. Robert Cade, Dana Shires, Harry James Free, Alejandro D. Casada. How many of you know those names? Anybody? Nobody knows those names? How about this name? Gatorade. 
They were the scientific team of the University of Florida in 1965 that created Gatorade. I remember the day there was only one flavor. Remember that? <laughs> Lemon lime, man. That was the only flavor it came in. Then they had orange. Two to choose from. Nowadays, Gatorade's changed the world. You say, how has it changed the world? Now you're out on a golf course, somebody pulls up to you and they want to sell you something to drink and you say, you got any Gatorade? And they say, yeah. And, you, and, and they say, what flavor do you want? And you say, blue. <laughs> blue is not a flavor. Am I right? What does blue taste like? Blue. They've changed the world. They're a thirst quencher. You've probably drank of their product because you get thirsty. As long as you're alive and you're serving and you're doing the cause of Christ, you're going to get thirsty. But if you're not doing anything for the cause of Christ, you probably aren't thirsty. It might be one of the reasons why. So attending to the need is going to make us thirsty. Number two is he's alone. And doing a work alone can make you rather thirsty. It's taxing. It's draining. Would you agree? One of you did, just we alone agree <laughs> concerning that. We find in the word of God that there's a prophet by the name of Elijah who sat down and he said to God, God, I alone am a prophet of yours. I am left alone serving you. And of course the Bible says, no, Elijah, I've got 7,000 others over here that are serving the Lord. But do you ever feel like you're all alone in trying to do the job? Many hands make a light load and if you are doing something by yourself, sometimes you feel like, man, why don't somebody help and, and do something? And so doing it alone, carrying a heavy load by yourself can sometimes drain you and you become very thirsty. And then there is the idea of, of what the scripture says in Isaiah 40. Many of us are familiar with this, beginning in verse 29. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall fail or faint and be weary. And the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. One particular observer of the eagle wrote this. He said, eagles fly at a high altitude and do not mix with sparrows or smaller birds. Birds of a feather flock together. No other bird goes to the height of the eagle. Never in a flock will you see them. Even when Moses in the Old Testament went to commune with God, this writer says, on the mountain, he went alone. He left the crowd at the foothills. Stay away from sparrows and ravens, this writer writes. And then he makes this statement. Eagles fly alone. Are you willing to serve the Lord whether anybody else serves or not? Or does somebody else have to come to the rescue? Is somebody else there? I'm telling you, it will be draining, yes. And it will make you thirsty, and that's where he was. What happened to the men of Judah? 3,000 of them came to the cleft of the rock, and 3,000 of them said, hey, we don't, don't you understand? We're slaves to the Philistines. We're going to deliver you into their hand. Not one of them said, hey, you need some help? You got 3,000 of us right here. We'd like to help out. What can we do? Not one of them did that. Not one of them. Instead, they were going to deliver him up to the others. Some people just don't like the work to be done. They'd rather for the work to cease instead of it going on. It's too draining. 
being on an alert. That's the third thing. He was constantly aware of his circumstances. Here he was bound with ropes. The ropes didn't bother him, but he was alert and he was aware that the ambushment was awaiting, that there was an ambush that was about to take place. And so when the Philistines shouted against him, he was ready for them. And he broke the ropes and began to slay them with a new or a fresh jawbone, which leads me to number four. Adapting to new things can be taxing. Would you agree? The Old English uses the word new in that text. In the New King James, I read the word fresh. Literally, it's a bone that has recently been uh, available to him and, and it is one that has, ha, has, has presented itself and he looks around. Here's what's interesting. He looks around for a weapon so that he can conquer the enemy and he finds a new or a fresh jawbone. I want to say this to you because most of us are adverse to change. But the truth of the matter is, learning something new is taxing. That's why we don't like it. It's draining. We've got to use more energy. I was, <laughs> I was talking with somebody this past week that uh, was handling some therapy for my mom who has recently had uh, actually multiple strokes. And, and she was explaining to me this uh, technician, the therapist, was saying how she had gotten her mother a cell phone. And her mother was having trouble using the cell phone and was constantly calling her from the landline. And uh, finally one day she asked her, why don't you use the phone I gave you? She said, I, I can't ever get a dial tone on this cell phone. <laughs> you say, say, what are you getting at? I'm saying sometimes it's taxing when we have to learn new stuff, man. But I'm telling you, if you're going to defeat the enemy of the day, you need to look for the weapon that's best to use. And sometimes it's different than what we've used in the past. We'll let the Holy Spirit apply the rest of that, and I'll move on to the next point. Actually, before I do that, let me warn you of something the Bible says in Proverbs 24, beginning in verse 30. I went by the field of the lazy man, or the slothful man, and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. And there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. You know, the truth of the matter is most of you won't feel like it, but you'll roll out of bed in the morning because you want to stay in the house you're at and to pay the mortgage payment, you got to go to work. And the truth is that we force ourselves to do things that we don't always want to do. But when it comes many times to the house of God and building the house of God and the work of God, we set it aside and say, you know, it just takes too much work to do that. And if you're not careful, one day, you listen to me, one day, this is a great church, don't misunderstand me. And what I'm saying is that it might remain a great church and not become like I'm about to say. But be very careful because if we develop an attitude of we've got to do the same thing over and over that we've always done or we don't get involved and pick up the new jawbone, if you will, and we don't decide to conquer the enemy in the world that you and I live in, the day will come when people will drive by this property and they will say, do you remember that church? You remember how that church used to be a thriving ministry? Do you remember how they used to see souls saved and lives changed? Do you remember the impact they used to have in the community? Be very careful. You can write your own future 
And it depends on whether you're slothful or not as a part of God's people. Amen? Amen. So I encourage you, keep up the good work. When I heard the number of volunteers we had at VBS, uh, I was just, in th just amazed. And I'm so proud of you as a pastor. I got to tell you, I, I love the fact that you've given me the opportunity to be your pastor. And I love you guys. It's a great church. But let's keep it that way. And let's remember what happens if we become slothful. Let's remember what happens if we, just a little folding of the hands and a little bit of sleep, before too long it'll slip away from us if we let it. So do not let it. The last point simply is be active in the battle. Asserting ourselves to fight. We just finished a, uh, recently we finished a, a whole series on being more than conquerors. And we talked about being on the offensive instead of just the defensive all the time. And understanding what that involves. And I'm telling you it's taxing. And you'll be thirsty as a result of the work that you do. You're going to be driven to the point that you cry out to God. And you say, God, I need some help. I'm thirsty. That's where Samson was. So let me give you the third lesson and I'll close here. Number three, God has a cure that relieves the thirst. The first thing we see is the Bible says he cried out to God. You know, when you get thirsty, when you're void of what you need to survive, even the strength, the physical strength, people try to do all kinds of stuff. They try to fill that in many, many ways. The best way in the world to fill it is simply by what we read here. Samson cried to God. And by the way, your thirstiest times, if you will, will come after a great victory. And that's where he is. He said, look at what, look at what God has done. God, you did this. You, you brought great victory. But now, now I've got to have something or, or I'm going to die right here. I can't go on. I, you ever feel that way? The Bible says the thing to do is to pray. Talk it over with God. This morning in our uh, Bible lesson in the ABF hour in our auditorium class, we're a little behind some of the other classes. We're still in Mark 14. And we talked about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here is Jesus and he's in great distress. The Bible says that his report to his disciples was that he was in such distress and sorrowful spirit even to the point of death, he said. And what does Jesus do when he gets to that point? What does he do when he is thirsty, if you will? What does he do? He goes to his father in prayer. And he invites three of the other disciples in to pray with him. So I'm telling you, there's something to this. To cry out to God. And the word cry in our text is interesting. It means to say it out loud. To pour it out to God out loud. So he calls on God. He goes to the right place for the answer. I didn't bring this to your attention, but earlier after his victory against the Philistines, before the men of Judah come to him, the Bible says he, he attacks them with a great slaughter and then he goes to the cleft of the rock. Remember Moses in the cleft of the rock? And God hit him there, covered him with his hand and passed by him and he saw the hinder part of God. There's something about going to God and, and having time with him to become refreshed and asking him to do the refreshing. Amen. It's so easy to get burnt out in the society that we live in. Some of you are working nonstop it seems. You're so busy and, and that is something we have to be careful of. Be careful to do the cause that God has given and understand he has the cure for our thirst. So not only does he call on God, he addresses God, but he anticipates God answering. 
He says, God, what am I supposed to do? There's nowhere for him to drink. There's nothing for him to drink. So God, the Bible says, does something to a hollow uh, place there. He split the hollow place, verse 19 says, and water came out. And then he drank it. He drank it. Let me say this to you. Just because water is available doesn't necessarily mean your thirst is going to be quenched if you don't drink of it. Let me say it another way. Jesus died on the cross for you. And just because forgiveness is available doesn't mean you have it unless you take of it. You claim it. Just because the word of God is presented in a manner that you can digest it and gain strength doesn't mean you've received it if you don't attend the places that it's being taught and don't put yourself where, it needs, where you need to be. So the Bible tells us that God supplied the water and he drank of it. He took it. He received it. And then the Bible says his spirit returned and he revived. His spirit returned and he revived. Without going into any detail, most of you know the story that follows this one. Samson and Delilah. And most of you might know and remember that after the cutting of his hair and the betrayal of Delilah, that the Bible records for us, he got up from that point. He was going to slay the Philistines who were coming against him. But he did not know that the Spirit of God was no longer with him. Now let me assure you of something. That's an Old Testament teaching of the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, you cannot lose the presence of the Holy Spirit. But I do believe you can do things that hinder the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me make that application. And let me tell you this. One of the worst things in the world we can do is attend church service after service and not know that we're missing the power of the Holy Spirit. Here we are, we look alive, we look refreshed, we look spiritual, we sing, we lift our hands, but only you and God know whether you stand in need of revival. Whether there's a thirst. And that might be where the prayer needs to start. God, give me a thirst. I remember the day that I thirsted for the things of God, you might think. God, help me to thirst again for the things of God. Help me to desire it. Like, like the Bible said earlier when we read that verse, we talked about that verse of the psalmist. Just like the deer pants after the water, let me pant after you, God. Let me cry out for you. Let me, let me, let me feel that refreshing and that reviving that I need personally in my life. When that happens individually, revival will break out in the church. It'll be an amazing thing. An amazing thing. Let's pray together.